The scripture reading for this evening will come from Acts 2, 29 through 41. If you want to turn there and stand when you're ready for the reading of God's word. It says this, Men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. For David said, for, sorry, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made both him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Be Maybe seated. So as we take a look at the conclusion of Peter's sermon this week in Acts chapter 2, we're going to probably only go to one other cross-reference, if, uh, if I can be disciplined, which is Psalm 110, which is where we started in the pastoral prayer. And so if you want to go ahead and flag that in your Bible, we'll be turning back and forth between Psalm 110 and Acts chapter 2 a little bit. And really the theme of Peter's sermon becomes evident in the conclusion of that sermon. Just like if you read a good book or watch a good movie, the central themes or the central points of those works become evident towards the end. You know, usually when you're watching a movie at the beginning or reading a book at the start, there's a lot of extraneous detail that's building the world or the imagination of whatever that film or book is telling you about. But the main point of the book or the movie doesn't become clear until much later on into its advancement. So, for instance, if you watch a movie that's all about, uh, like one of the Marvel movies about uh, heroes and villains and, and defeat and triumph, a lot of those movies aren't actually about good versus evil. A lot of them are about the characters and the kind of trials and triumphs they have to endure and, and overcome. And that doesn't become clear to you until much later in the movie when you've seen that character or person un endure hardship, suffering, and then ultimately maybe triumph over that hardship and suffering. And so it is with, with Peter's sermon here. The central point, the underlying theology and the, the thing that he's impressing upon his listeners is this idea that God is sovereign in heaven. And when we say God, what Peter says is, by that I mean Jesus Christ is sovereign in heaven, ruling and reigning over all creation. Therefore, you must repent and respond accordingly. And he's been building that case for the last couple of weeks. So if you want to give a high-level summary of what he's arguing, the first week we covered that first Old Testament quotation from the book of Joel, and I could summarize it like this. Something has happened recently. 
right? In these last days, something has now taken place. That something is manifested by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all these strange signs. And then he says, now that something is caused by Jesus Christ, his resurrection and ultimately his ascension, which are the proofs that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So that thing that's happening was caused by Christ, who is vindicated as the Messiah. And then this week, the high-level summary would be that this Christ didn't just resurrect and then uh, go about his merry way. No, he resurrected and ascended and now reigns as Lord over all creation. That fundamental lordship of God over the universe, or in this case of Christ over the universe, is so fundamental to Christian belief and Christian thought, and actually it's so fundamental to the world itself, that often we forget to even think about it cognizantly. We forget to even imagine what it would be like to live in a world that God didn't rule over by his benevolence. Now, it's, it would be hard for us, actually I think it would be near impossible for us to imagine what a world or a universe or uh, an existence would be like apart from God's sovereign reigning over it, his benevolent rule. There's, there's many things like this in life that it would be almost impossible for us to imagine life apart from. But one example that comes to mind of something that uh, we take for granted every day and we just assume in our lives, but that we know other humans have experienced life without, uh, is something like gravity. So for instance, when uh, astronauts live in the International Space Station for some period of time, something they get used to, they have to have this acclimation period of living a life that is not influenced by or doesn't function on gravity uh, interacting with the things around them. So they have to get used to, uh, when they brush their teeth, you can't spit uh, the, the toothpaste into the sink because there's no gravity to assist the toothpaste going down. You have to find a different way to dispose of toothpaste. You, because you're a limited oxygen supply, now you're limited in what kind of food you can make, how much food you can make. Uh, if you want to write with a, with a pen, well, you have to write with a specific kind of pen because the, the normal pens don't work up in space. And also, if you want to put the pen down, you don't put it down, you just leave it dangling. And then at some point later, if you want to grab it, you just grab the pen from where you left it. And there's an interesting interview that uh, is available, you guys could go find it online, where there's an astronaut who's recently come back from his stint in the International Space Station. And he's being interviewed by a television host, he's trying to explain what things were like in space. And during the course of the interview, he's holding a pen, and he, he thinks to go do something else, and he just lets go of the pen in midair, and then turns around to go do something, and then he hears the pen hit the floor and realizes, oh, <laughs> pens do that back here on Earth. And it's, it's strange to us because no, none of us who've never been to space or lived in space for a period of time, we would never think to suspend a pen in midair, right? We always put pens down when we're leaving them alone. That's because we live our entire life under the authority, if you like, of gravity. It's impossible for us to imagine what life is like apart from gravity. And so it is also with the Lordship of Christ. It is impossible to imagine what life is actually like outside of his Lordship. And part of becoming a Christian, part of, part of converting and believing and responding in faith to Jesus, is beginning to live our life back under the authority of his Lordship, which is a natural thing. If you can think about it this way, this is probably a silly way to think about it. But when we were sinners, one of the things that we would do is we would suspend pens in midair for no reason. We would act contrary to the plain reality around us for no apparent reason. Simply because we refuse to submit ourselves to God's lordship. 
It's a little bit what sin is like. It's a refusal to submit the sovereignty of God over creation. And becoming a Christian is reacclimating ourselves by the grace of the Holy Spirit back to living life as it was always intended to be lived in right relationship to the God who created the universe. Now that might all seem obscure, like how am I getting that from this text? I'm going to try to show you that in a moment. But I'm, I want to prime you for that idea because that is, in fact, the point, I think, of Peter's sermon. Christ is Lord. Every other response, every other thing that's happening is all in support of or in response to the Lordship of Christ. But the Lordship of Christ is what reigns supreme in this, this text. So let's turn to the text and follow Peter's argument. And we covered some of these verses last week, but uh, it's good to have a little bit of a refresher. Remember, he's just finished quoting from Psalm uh, 16, where he speaks of David and David speaking about not being abandoned. And then he says in verse 29, Brothers, I might say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So whatever Psalm 16 is talking about, it's not talking about David because David is still dead. So Psalm 16, rather, is talking about Jesus. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So here's Peter preaching a sermon and doing the very thing that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 that the disciples would do. That they would be witnesses of the resurrection to the people in the world. And here Peter is saying almost self-consciously in the sermon, we, the apostles, are witnesses of Christ's resurrection. And that's what these people who are now seeing the preaching of the apostles are also experiencing. They're, they're witnessing the resurrected Christ in his ministry power to them. And so Jesus is, is the point. Jesus' resurrection is the point. And so here's the theological transition point, something that we always forget about. Uh, I say always. I, maybe I'm speaking for myself here. If I don't consciously remind myself of the importance of Christ's ascension, I'm prone to forget about it. But Peter thinks the ascension is really important, especially for proving the lordship of Christ. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Christ did not just die. He was not just buried. He did not just resurrect, but he also ascended. And the ascension is part of the proof of his majesty and of his glory. Whereas the resurrection proves his truth claims that he was the Christ, as Psalm 16 shows, a different psalm, Psalm 110, shows that the ascension also proves his place as the Christ, the Messiah of God. By the way, I'm using those terms interchangeably just because Christ is the, the, the same term as Messiah that you would see in the Old Testament. They're the, they're the same word. So Jesus ascended, this is in verse uh, 33, Jesus ascended at the right hand of God and his ascension is proved by the fact that the Holy Spirit has now been sent, which is kind of where the whole conversation started about the speaking in tongues and people saying they're drunk in the middle of the day. So follow the logic, right? He's, he's explaining what's happening at Pentecost and he's saying it's all related to the fact that Christ currently reigns on the throne. He, from his throne, has sent his spirit because he has also received the, 
power of the Spirit, the gift, if you will, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now he sends that gift of the Holy Spirit upon his people, and that's what's being witnessed today. And he doesn't just make a thin claim out of nowhere. He quotes from an Old Testament text, because remember what Christ said to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed to them the things in Scripture which spoke about him. So it's not just Psalm 16, it's not just Joel 2. He's going to get Psalm 110 in the mix here as well, and he's going to say, Here's what happens in Psalm 110, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says. So before we read what David says, notice it's the exact parallel to what happens in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, David writes something, and Peter says, this can't apply to David because David is still dead. We can find his tomb. Verse 34, David did not ascend to the heavens. But what does Psalm 110 say? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now you might be thinking, what does that have to do with ascending to heaven? It seems like it's a a psalm about power, true enough. But the right hand of the throne, the right hand of of the Lord's throne is a a location reference. So if you were to think about uh, a throne, and the authority of that throne, the right hand of the throne is associated with the authority. So if you were an ancient king and you were to grant your authority to someone or you were to see who is associated with the authority of this throne, uh, it would be the person at the right hand of that throne. And in the Old Testament poetry especially, the right hand of the throne becomes associated with the very power and the authority of that throne itself. And what's interesting is Peter saying that David didn't ascend to the heavens which is, by the way, the heavens is where the throne of God is. Rather, Christ did ascend to the heavens. And so Psalm 110 can't apply to David because he's not sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what's happening in the ascension. And Psalm 110 says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Or some translations might say, until I put all your enemies under your feet. You might remember at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus uh, enters into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he has a series of altercations. We can talk about them that way. series of altercations with the Pharisees. And one of those altercations in particular, Jesus makes an allusion also to Psalm 110. So before we go to the contents of Psalm 110, let's go back into Luke's gospel towards the end of it, the triumphal entry. This would be in Luke chapter 20. It's particularly at the end of Luke chapter 20 in verse 41. But I just want to paint the scene for you, just a brief refresher. I know many of you were here when we, when we went over that text. Remember, Jesus comes into Jerusalem being praised and adored. And the Pharisees reject him and they say, tell everyone not to praise you. And he says, I'm not going to do that. And if, I did, and if I told everyone to stop praising me, the very stones would cry out in praise of me. That's all in chapter 19. Then Jesus goes on a series of activities that really rub the religious leaders the wrong way because he's taking an authority position that they haven't given him. He declares the temple unfit. He clears the temple of its wickedness. And that is the final thing, him entering into Jerusalem and clearing the temple that finally sets them to oppose him and do so more, uh, oppose him more aggressively. And so, for instance, uh, you see at the beginning of chapter 20, 
uh, they, they come to him and they ask him a question. This is chapter 20, verse 2. Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he is clever. He outsmarts them. He asks them a question about John's baptism because they're both uh, people pleasers and cowards. And so they're not going to answer that question as they think they ought to. And so Jesus confounds them in that sense. They come again, uh, Then he goes to them and he tells them a parable about a man who owns a vineyard. And ultimately the culmination of that parable is that the people, the wicked tenants who have possessed the vineyard uh, and have done so against the master's authority, take the son of the vineyard owner and kill him. That's the, the termination of that parable. And then they hear this parable, they see that he speaks it against them, and then they send another covert group to go uh, speak to him. And they say, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Which is a pretty controversial thing if you're under the thumb of the Roman government to ask of a religious leader. And Jesus once again outsmarts them, answering both that they should pay taxes to the rightly ordained governing authorities, and also that God is the one whom ultimate worship is owed. That's in uh, chapter 20, verses 19 and, and following. Then they send another crowd against him to go speak to him about the resurrection, asking him a tricky question. That's a big theological debate uh, in the first century. He answers them appropriately, uh, basically calling out their, their foolishness. And then he ceases all debate with the question that Peter is now quoting from in Psalm 110. So this is in, uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 40 of uh, Luke 20. They no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? How can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? How can we say that? For David himself says in the book of Psalms that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he, this Christ figure, also David's son? You understand the point. David's saying of the Lord himself that the Lord says to my Lord. So he's referring to two different Lords that he is speaking of. And he's saying one Lord says to the other Lord, both of whom are over me, sit at my right hand. That's a problem because if David's the father, David would not call any of his children Lord rightfully. And so Jesus calls this into question. And they don't respond to him. They don't answer any of his questions. It kind of just ends there. That's where the theological debate of Luke ends. It hangs in suspense. And then instead of answering the question, Jesus just goes and fulfills and completes the prophecy of Psalm 110, culminating in his resurrection and ascension. And that takes us back to Peter's sermon, where Peter quotes the exact same passage. And now, instead of leaving it to inference what the conclusion of Psalm 110 is, he's going to with certainty say the conclusion of Psalm 110, and this is in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Jesus hangs Psalm 110 in suspense. He goes and takes all these actions and activities that completes the prophecy of the psalm. And then Peter goes and turns around and explains to the people at, at the day of Pentecost, here's what happened. Jesus is the Christ of whom David spoke. Jesus is the one who David called Lord. And let all the house of Israel know that for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Now that might uh, fall upon you, uh, like those are just three different names for Jesus. And I, I think that's a good thing to think about because that means you've been steeped in the Christian scriptures for a while because the Christian scriptures speak about Jesus as Lord and Christ. But what Peter's saying is strange to a Jewish ear because what he just said is that the title Adonai, which is reserved for God alone, was given to Jesus, the earthly prophet. God made Jesus Lord. If you're uh, a Jewish, faithful Jewish person, you're thinking, well, Deuteronomy chapter says, 6 says that the Lord our God's Lord is one. There's only one Lord. And you can think about the complex development of that theology, particularly as it relates to Daniel chapter 7, where there's one who's a man who comes to the Lord and receives from that Lord authority. And here Peter is explaining that, that there is one, the Messiah, the Christ, who also will receive the title Lord. And it's not a New Testament fabrication that that's the case. That's expected in the Old Testament scriptures. And as Jesus points out to the, to the Pharisees in his day, Psalm 110 alludes to this. And it's difficult to understand how Psalm 110 could be referring to any earthly descendant of David who's not also a divine being. Because he's, the person in Psalm 110 is given the title Lord, the one who sits on the throne. Moreover, the figure in Psalm 110 sits at the Lord's throne. David never sits at God's throne. David is given an earthly throne over an earthly people, the Israelites, but his throne is never to be confused with the throne in heaven. David did not ascend into the heavens. Jesus did ascend into the heavens and sent his spirit as proof that when he ascended, he didn't just vanish into the clouds, but he actually went to a position of authority and is now ministering from his authoritative state back to the church, back to his people. Uh, maybe another way you could think about this is the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is one of the proofs of Jesus' resurrection and ultimately of his ascension, or if I could put it a different way, the, the Holy Spirit is a fruit and a proof of Jesus' authority. The Holy Spirit's activity in the life of his church is proof of Jesus' authority over the world and also over his bride, the church. Because the Holy Spirit is the gift that Jesus gives to his church from his throne. This is the point of the sermon. And as I said it when we were in the first week of the sermon in Joel 2, all of our eschatology, meaning all of our theology about how history terminates, should be focused upon Christ himself. And this is a little bit of an eschatology focused on Christ. It's saying these last days have begun with Christ's ascension to the throne and from his ascension also the sending of his spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is live in the church today, is one of the marks that we are in this final era of history where God is reconciling the world to himself by means of his gospel and by means of his spirit. Okay, that's all very high theology. Now we have to take a step back down to earth and ask the same question that the listeners in Peter's day asked. And we're going to ask that question, and then, I promise, we'll go to Psalm 110 and see how does Psalm 110 relate to this question. So Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is the response after all these weeks of preaching. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can we pause there? They hear this message. They hear Jesus is on the throne. They hear that they're the ones who crucified Jesus via the Romans. And so their response is appropriate. If, if Jesus is God and we wronged him, we need to be saved. That's exactly the quotation of Joel. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now they're understanding their guilt and their, uh, their need for redemption. And so they ask the appropriate question, what shall we do? And here's, here's what, when I, when I talk about Christ's sovereignty or God's sovereignty over the whole world and our fundamental assumption of that and we don't think about it consciously, part of what I mean is if you were to go out in the world today or just live your life, the way the world is set up is it's set up to constantly deaden you to the reality of your sinfulness against the holy God. Everywhere you go, everywhere you look, everything you listen to and almost everything you consume is going to in some way or another shape you to believing that you don't need to be changed, that there is no God, or if there is a God, he's a spiritual God who's not mad at you for anything that you've done wrong. And so the whole world deadens us to this reality of guilt against a sovereign God. Now, let's say you don't believe in a, a sovereign God or a monotheistic God, so, but, but think with me for a moment. If God were sovereign, and if he is Lord, over all creation, and you were to find out that you wronged this God, you would need to be put right with the one who is the author of all things. Uh, imagine the characters in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia rebelling against C.S. Lewis, the author, and saying, we don't want you to be author over us. That would suspend the whole universe because they can't exist in a world apart from his authorship. Neither can we exist in a world apart from God's lordship. And so if God is Lord, if we suppose that for just a moment, then we must be put right with this God whom we have wronged. And that's what Christ's sacrifice does. He was crucified for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. And it's not just by his wounds we are healed. It's also that by his resurrection and his ascension, he then gives to us this blessing of being sons of God. And that's all related to his lordship and his authority and his rule and his reign. So what does this all have to do with Psalm 110? Well, if you go to Psalm 110, there's more to the psalm than just the idea of his reigning and ruling. There's also some natural implications from that psalm. So this is Psalm 110, beginning uh, in verse 1. These verses are the ones you've already read. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. This is Christ, or we might say in this case, Jesus' mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely to you on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth, 
the, or from the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. Jesus is a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So if we're understanding Peter's argument, he's saying, this is all about Jesus, the one who reigns, the one who rules. Now think about what that means. It's not just that God reigns in the heavens, it's that now Christ also reigns in the heavens. And he doesn't just reign in the heavens as a benevolent God who says, I'll forgive anyone of whatever sin they've committed, regardless of how they feel about me. He has wrath and judgment against his enemies. He's given a scepter, verse 2, to rule in the midst of his enemies. That is, uh, a scepter is a, a, a king's symbol of authority, which he uses to command his armies, to command his peoples against his opponents and for the peace of his own kingdom. So Christ's scepter is given to him from Zion to rule over all his enemies. And then there's this gracious extension of forgiveness that Christ offers to us, but it doesn't deaden the fact that there are enemies of Christ out in the world who will be put under his feet. Another way I could say this is it's not just God the Father who's wrathful against sin. Jesus himself is the judge of sin, the one who judges sinners themselves. He's the one ruling in the midst of his enemies. And what are his people like as a result of this rule? Well, his people are empowered to worship him, to give themselves freely to him in the day of his power or after his ascension, right? This is now him in power. And they do so with holy garments. It's quite striking. Uh, holy garments, we are not holy on our own. Jesus has made us to be holy by his own self, by his own blood, and has then given us that holiness so that when we worship him, we do so also dependent on him and his righteousness. The Lord has sworn this and he will not change his mind. Jesus is a priest, meaning he's an intercessor forever for us. That priestly intercession is really important when we go back to Acts chapter 2 because there's this idea of needing repentance and forgiveness that Christ himself also mediates to us. He's not just king, he's also priest. But I just want to make sure I have the thrust of the psalm right, at least in your minds. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So the thrust of this psalm is destruction for the enemies of God because of the throne and the kingdom. And here Peter is assigning that all to Jesus in his ascension. This is where the Christian church has gotten the idea that God will come once again at the end of the ages to judge both the living and the dead. None will escape his judgment. So this idea of him being priest derived from Psalm 110 is significant because it helps us to understand the response of the crowd and ultimately it helps us to understand our response today. So if you go back to Acts chapter 2, you might already be there. I want to pick it up to what Peter says to the crowd. Most notably in verse 38, he tells them to repent and to be baptized, every one of you. Let's get some bad ideas out of the way. Repentance and baptism are connected, but baptism is not salvific. Elsewhere in scripture, we hear that we are to be baptized as an appeal before God for a clean conscience. Baptism does not save us as a washing away of sins. 
or as a removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal before God. Baptism is associated with repentance because baptism is the sign of being clean, being washed. And that's what is accomplished in a sinner's repentance. When they repent of their sins and they trust in Christ, he washes them clean of their sins by his blood and makes them to be clean. So repentance is given to God's people uh, as a gift. And then also baptism is given to those same people who repent as a gift, a sign, a seal of what repentance signifies. So here we have repentance as the appropriate response to Jesus' lordship. As I said earlier, if we imagine that there is a God and we have wronged this God, we must be put right with him. And so the appropriate response is repentance. And I want to suspend that belief for just a moment. We're not saying if there is a God, scriptures declare there is a God. And we're not saying if we've wronged him, scriptures do in fact declare that we've wronged him and that we've sinned against him. And so it's not a question then of if we repent, but it's a command that we do repent. And there's another idea that sometimes lurks, especially in in Christian communities, uh, of what repentance is and what it isn't. So repentance is is fundamentally a turning away from our sins, a turning away from our, our enemy status with God, and turning towards a right relationship with God or turning towards obedience with God. Repentance is not just feeling guilty for sin. As the author of Hebrews points out, Cain felt sorry after he gave up the promise, but he sought no opportunity for repentance. As we've seen with Judas at the beginning of Acts, he felt guilty enough to kill himself, but he did not turn in faith to look to Christ. Peter also felt guilty for his sins, and he was able to be restored by Christ. Repentance is not just feeling bad for sin. Repentance is also taking that guilt, that shame, and going to Christ and saying, I can't deal with this, can you? The point is that repentance is more than a feeling of guilt. Or once that feeling of guilt subsides, that means there's no more need for repentance. Repentance is turning from our sins, turning towards Christ, and taking our sins to Christ so that he might deal with them. And understood in that lens, as Christians, we, it's not that we have repented at some point in the past, and now we live as Christians. A repentance is an active discipline of the Christian life. We are in a constant state of repentance, confession of sin, need of forgiveness of our sins, and then walking back into newness of life. This doesn't mean that we go in and out of salvation depending on whether or not we've repented of our sins. But, as David says in Psalm 51, uh, we can certainly lose the joy of our salvation if we do not repent of our sins. Christ's blood has atoned for sinners. He has called his people to himself. But... His people sometimes don't confess their sins as they ought to and therefore have no comfort in their relationship with God. Repentance is a means by which we can once again experience this joy that we have with our Father. We can once experience joy with Christ the Son. Repentance is a means by which we experience the grace of God's forgiveness. There's there's no way to live a Christian life 
apart from repentance. One, one way to think about it is repentance is the, the sum of our life as Christians. We, we sin, we confess our sins, we go before the Lord, and we repent, and we are forgiven, and he once again says to us, you are forgiven, go and sin no more. That's our whole Christian life. There's never a state where you're not going to be dependent upon repentance and confession of sin. The other bad idea that's associated with this, though, is that because we are always dependent on repentance, that therefore we should expect no victory over sins, we will just constantly be repenting of the same kinds of sins. It's also a bad idea, and it's nowhere found in Scripture, because Scripture assumes that once we have first repented of our sins, first turned from our sins and trusted in Christ, that he gives to us the Holy Spirit, who is the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, that's later in the verse, and the Holy Spirit bears within us fruit, good works, works leading to repentance. As John the Baptist says, bear fruit in accordance with repentance. And so to repent is also to manifestly change our actions and our behaviors. That's not, that's not works-based righteousness. Every single Protestant reformer understood the fact that we can both say we're justified by Christ alone and also that justifying faith never stands on its own, but it's always accompanied by the necessary fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we repent, and part of our repentance is that we should expect to live changed lives. This might be frustrating, this might be slow, this might seem daunting to us, but to repent is to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. And if you're thinking right now, Oh, there's a lot of sins that I still struggle with that I used to uh, also struggle with before I was a Christian. Uh, does that mean I'm not saved if I'm not having constant victory over sin? Not necessarily. But, but when we repent, we should expect victory over sin. It, it is accompanied by repentance to have victory over sin. We might be able to ask ourselves different questions. Do we still love that sin as we once did? Or do we actually want to be rid of it? Or when we sin, can we actually enjoy the sin anymore? Or has the joy of the sin been taken from us? It is not possible as a Christian to enjoy sinning, not for any length of time. It is not possible as a Christian to engage in sin for any length of time without the Holy Spirit convicting and bringing to us shame and a a feeling of our need for forgiveness. It is not possible to live for any length of time as a Christian in unrepentant sin. Because repentance is part and parcel of the Christian life. Now what Peter says to this crowd is that they're to repent. Repentance is connected with their baptism. This is all connected to the forgiveness of their sins and that it's also all connected to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's a, a whole bunch of things that are all coalescing together in the book of Acts. Some of the later narratives will help us see what is kind of a sequence here and, and what isn't. But at least at this moment we can note the forgiveness of sins is linked with repentance Baptism is a sign, an outward declaration of these things being true or real. It's a sign to the people. And also the Holy Spirit accompanies those who are believers. And this is a promise, which is not just for the Jewish people who are present in that day, but it's for them and for their children and for all who are far off, as Peter says, as many as the Lord our God calls to himself, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Uh, We've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again as we go through the book of Acts. How the gospel goes forward is not by people 
having secret revelations of God, feeling guilty for sin, and then trying to find a Christian or a pastor to help them understand how salvation works. The gospel goes forward by us, by the body of Christ, preaching that gospel forward into the world. This is why we emphasize discipleship and evangelism, or even this moment of gathering in worship on Sunday and preaching the word out loud is all part of the fact that the gospel has to go forward by word, by action, by activity from the people of God. And so that's totally in line with what is said there in verse 39. So these people are hearing the gospel and they're thinking, well, what do I do with this gospel? It's not just that they're to respond to the gospel, but they're to understand what role they now play in this kingdom community if they do respond. So this promise is given to them. Let's say you're a, a Jewish father on that day and you're hearing this all preach and you're believing that you are in need of forgiveness and grace from Christ Jesus. And you think, well, when I go home to my family, how does that impact my life? Well, your whole life is lived under the Lordship of Christ, as we saw in Psalm 110. Everything is under the Lordship of Christ. So if you're a Jewish father and you're thinking, well, what do I go home and tell my wife and my children? This promise goes to them as well. You are to take this message of forgiveness and declare it everywhere you go, even to your family. There's this, there was this idea uh, in, in my parents' generation and maybe a couple of generations as well uh, surrounding that, that what you, what, the worst thing you could do to your children if you wanted them to stay in the church was indoctrinate them into the faith as though that would somehow set them up for being bitter towards church and therefore leaving the faith. That what you really wanted to do is leave kids alone and at some point down the line they would make a decision for themselves and then you can start you know, teaching them Bible verses and teaching them theology. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to taint them before they can make decisions on their own two feet. But we don't treat anything else like that with, with children. The gospel goes forward also through parents ministering to their children. If I could maybe apply this, many of you are expecting children. Some of you are hoping to have children at some point in the future. If you're a father and a Christian father, you have a duty before God to minister to your children. When you think about the gospel going forward, it's, it's tempting for us to think about missions to countries who we, don't, we can't even know the languages of. Yes, the gospel goes forward that way. But how, how do you play a role in the gospel going forward? Well, if you have a family, if you have children, here's a mission field. Here's a whole bunch of people who need to hear about the saving grace of God on a regular basis. If you're a mom, how do you live your life? How will you live your life so that your children will grow to know the Lord in a saving way? I don't think as parents we ought to seriously consider that. How do we set up our homes and our families so that our children might come to know the Lord? We should minister and live our lives as though this promise is to us and to our children so that it would go forward through also the family. If you're a single in a church and you're thinking, well, I don't have kids and I'm not married, you should pray for also the married couples in the church that they would be faithful in discharging this duty to their children. Because this is one way that the church grows, is by people growing up in the church, growing to love the Lord through the ministry of the church in their lives, and then they could say when they're an adult, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, I've loved the Lord since the time of my youth, and here I am worshiping him and praising him for glory. If you're a parent, is that not the desire that you have for your child? That they would know the Lord forever and not know a time apart from knowing the Lord? I can certainly say that it is a grace to me that my parents raised me in the fear of the Lord. 
it's such a blessing to have known the Lord from all time. And if we had, we had children here who could follow what I'm saying, I would say, children, obey your parents in the Lord, as the Psalms also say. And this is all connected, of course, to the promise, right? The promise is to us, to our children, and as we're going to see in the book of Acts, to everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, rich and poor alike, male and female alike, everyone whom God is pleased to call to himself. The promise will go forward. And what we see then in verse 40 is that this is just a snapshot of Peter's sermon. It's a small taste of what he actually said. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. And what he exhorts them is to say, save yourselves from this group of generation. Don't look to the left or to the right or to the person next to you and say, well, do you believe this? If you believe this, and I'll believe this. Let this resonate in your heart, in your conscience, and think, am I guilty before God? Must I confess my sin? And respond appropriately. Save yourself from this crooked generation. And so all those who received this word, they were baptized. And the result of the Pentecost sermon is about 3,000 people added to the church. And that's impressive, right? This is the Jesus is the first fruits, and then Pentecost is the full harvest coming in, if we think about it in that uh, Levitical calendar kind of terminology. Here come in a huge reaping harvest from that expected resurrection of Christ. By the way, uh, there's almost 2 billion people who would profess to worship the Lord today as Christians. That's not saying everyone of that number is a Christian, but this Holy Spirit going forward and the gospel going forward has had an immense harvest in the world. By God's grace, and our prayer is, to, is that it would continue to bear fruit and continue to reap a harvest into our generations, into our children's generations, and into the future of the Christian church. And so that is the hope of our prayers. That is the hope of our mission as a church. And again, it's all based around this fundamental concept that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Christ, you are Lord over all. It is to you whom we owe allegiance and worship. And Lord, it is to you whom we declare our lives. Lord, I pray that we who are your people would surrender ourselves to you. Our work, our families, our very selves. That you would be Lord of all. Which is just in line with nature as it is. You are Lord of all. Lord, help us to submit to that truth. Lord, if there are any here tonight who have not yet submitted to your lordship, if there are any here tonight who are Christians and who walk outside of your lordship, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, by your grace, would you call us once again to yourself? Pursue us who are lost and call us to home, that we would be known by you, loved by you, and enjoyers of the fellowship that we have with you. Lord, I pray for this people, for this body, for your bride that you would continue to purify us by the grace of the Holy Spirit, by your very intercession as our high priest, and by your future saving of all those who will come to know you through our lives and through the lives of this body. We pray for the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, would your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen.